Welcome to On the Ballot with Ballotpedia, where we take a closer look at the week's top political stories. Ballotpedia connects people to politics by providing neutral, nonpartisan, and reliable information on our government, how it works, and where it's headed. I'm Victoria Rose, and thanks for being with us. Just as a quick reminder to our listeners, On the Ballot is a conversational podcast featuring interviews with guests across the political spectrum. The views and opinions expressed by them are solely their own and are not representative of the views of the host or Ballotpedia as a whole. Today, we're joined by Steve Vladek, who's a professor at the University of Texas School of Law and is an expert on the federal courts, constitutional law, national security law, and military justice. He graduated from Yale Law School in 2004 and has argued over a dozen cases cases in front of the U.S. Supreme Court, Texas's state Supreme Court, and various federal and military courts. He began his tenure at UT Austin in 2016, regularly writes op-eds, and is interviewed across the media spectrum. He is currently CNN's Supreme Court analyst and co-hosts a podcast of his own called the National Security Law Podcast. His new book called The Shadow Docket comes out on May 16th. Steve, thanks for coming on the show. Thanks for having me, Victoria. It's great to be here. Of course. So we are both Texas residents, so we have that in common. But I'd love to hear more about your background. Why law? And how did you make that transition from litigation to academia? Sure. Um, so I, you know, I went straight from college to law school because um, I couldn't come up with anything better to do. Um, everyone told me, including my parents, to take some time off, and I didn't listen to them. Uh, they were probably right. Um, but you know, I, I've always been interested in institutions, um, right? So in college, I was a history major and wrote about like the war crimes trials after World War One. Um, and, you know, I was in law school on 9-11. It was like the second day of law school um, and sort of institutional responses and how institutions function in our system and preserve the rule of law has just been, you know, a moderate obsession of mine all the way through. Um, so I, I was, you know, I stumbled into this gig where I could both teach full time and practice on the side. Um, and I've actually been doing that my whole career. So I started in 2005 at the University of Miami um, in Florida um, and was there for two years, was at American University in Washington, D.C. for nine years um, and have been here in Austin at UT for the last seven. And it's been it's been quite a ride, but it's also um, it, it's, it's great and also giving you different perspectives on on the, the country in which you are not just living, but in which the legal system you're studying is operating. Yeah. And all I'll say on that is Ballotpedia is nonpartisan, but hook em horns. <laughs> the title of your new book is The Shadow Docket, How the Supreme Court Uses Stealth Rulings to Amass Power and Undermine the Republic. So could you define the term shadow docket for our listeners and tell us a little bit about the origins? Sure. Um, so the shadow docket was this evocative shorthand that was coined by a University of Chicago law professor named Will Bode in 2015, to describe something that the Supreme Court has actually always had, um, which is that, you know, the Supreme Court of the United States um, is asked to review, you know, somewhere between 5,000 and 6,000 cases every year. And yet we tend to fixate on what we call the merits docket on the 60-ish of those five to 6,000 cases where the court grants what we call certiorari, grants discretionary review, um, has multiple rounds of briefing, holds very formal oral argument, and hands down lengthy rationale, you know, heavy decisions. Um, Will's insight, which the book really tries to pick up and 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 uh, appropriate, um, is that there's actually a lot of really important stuff that happens outside of those sixty-ish merits cases, um, and that we don't spend enough time as lawyers, as law professors, as you know, folks who help to cover and translate what the Supreme Court does, we don't talk about it enough. The public isn't aware of it enough. Um, 
And so what's, what's fascinating, Victoria, is that when Will coined the term eight years ago, he really meant it not as any kind of pejorative, but simply as a descriptive umbrella um, and an invitation for us to pay more attention to what happens in the shadows. And so I, I took him up on the invitation. And it turns out that when you look more closely at what's happening in the shadows, um, you see some alarming patterns. Um, and so the, that's the ambit of the book. The ambit of the book is for you know smart people who care about the Supreme Court, whether or not they're lawyers, um, to try to make this very technical but very important side of not just what the Supreme Court does today, but how the Supreme Court has evolved as an institution, much, much more accessible to all of us. And in some of your op-eds that discuss the shadow doc and then obviously go into more detail in your book, you talk about the increase in the number of orders that they're issuing from their emergency docket. Can you kind of add numbers to that increase? Yeah, I mean, there are numbers. I I think one trick is to not get lost in the numbers. But so there are two major subsets of what we might call shadow docket orders of, of rulings the Supreme Court hands down away from the merits docket. The biggest subset by volume is actually not emergency orders. The biggest subset is just regular grants or denials of discretionary review. The Supreme Court, at least since the 1920s, has had pretty broad control over what cases it hears and over what it decides even within the cases it hears. And so by volume, Victoria, the the vast majority of what the Supreme Court does is denying certiorari. It's basically telling a party, no, we're not taking up your appeal from the lower court. By tradition, those orders are unsigned, they're unexplained, they're not supposed to have any precedential value. Um, what has really changed in the last seven or eight years is not that side of the, of the river, um, but the other side, the sort of the smaller but just as important bucket of what's often called emergency applications. And it, to, to sort of understand what emergency applications are, we have to take a half a step back. Um, most cases, before they get to the Supreme Court, have gone through years of litigation in multiple levels of lower state or federal courts, um, or both in some cases. Um, And so usually the Supreme Court is getting an appeal at the very end of this multi-year laborious process. Uh, Emergency applications are when earlier in the litigation, before things have run their course, before the case is ready for plenary review in the Supreme Court, a party is asking the Supreme Court to intervene, not to resolve the full dispute, but to affect, to alter the status quo. So for example, in a lawsuit that's challenging, say, a federal policy, um, if the trial court early in the lawsuit blocks the policy, you might see the federal government go quickly to the Court of Appeals and then the Supreme Court to unblock the policy. This is what happened in September um, with the Mifepristone litigation in Texas, right? So emergency applications are you know, supposed to be rare. They're supposed to be extraordinary. And yet in the last six or seven years, they've blown up Um, just data wise, right? The court used to average granting five, six, maybe seven of these a year. Um, And, you know, the court's years, the court's on a weird calendar. It runs from October to October. Um, But what what we call the court's annual term Um, and almost all of those Victoria from the 1980s into the 2010s were in death penalty cases where what the court was being asked to do was right before an execution was scheduled uh, to block the execution from going forward or to unblock it, I mean, depending on the circumstances. Um, Starting in around 2017, 2018, we see both the total number of emergency applications that are granted shoot up um, from five, six, seven to the low 20s, which is a pretty meaningful 
uh, shift, but also the sort of the qualitative effect, where instead of being focused on is one state going to be allowed to execute one prisoner, um, which, you know, disputes that tended not to have statewide or even nationwide implications. Now these are disputes about Trump era immigration policies or um, state COVID mitigation measures or the Biden administration's vaccination or testing mandate for large businesses, right? I mean, policies that whatever you think of them um, have nationwide impact. And so, you know, what, what, what I think caught a lot of people by surprise, including I think we can say the Supreme Court, is that norms and pathologies that had developed in the very, very unique and surreal context of the death penalty get translated and imported um, into disputes over everything under the sun, where all of a sudden, you know, we're really surprised to find out um, that the Supreme Court can have such massive effects on our lives without explaining what they've done with, you know, in, in a one sentence order that simply says the application for a stay is granted. And do you think any of this has to do with the unprecedented times of our politics with like the coronavirus and other unprecedented things that our country is facing? And that's why the number of emergency requests is higher. And then obviously the number of orders granted is going to rise as the requests rise. So I, I guess I, I want to sort of uh, push back a bit against the assumption that the grants will, that the numerator follows the denominator, right? So yes, there's no question that we have in the last six or seven years seen circumstances that have prompted an unusual number of emergency applications. But I think there are two problems with sort of blaming that for the phenomenon, right? The first is um, that of itself doesn't create emergencies from a litigation perspective, um, right? Like a, an emergency in the world only creates a litigation emergency when the lower courts are doing something wrong. Um, right. And so if the real problem is that uh, lower courts are failing to be sufficiently critical of state COVID policies um, or lower courts are being unduly critical of Trump immigration policies, right? If that's the problem, um, then the Supreme Court should say so, so that they're providing guidance and rationales to future lower courts. But the second piece of it is just because more people are seeking emergency relief doesn't mean that more people are entitled to it. Um, because one of the, you know, what, what, what separates out a, a typical emergency application from just a regular appeal. In a regular appeal, the question for the Supreme Court is who's right, right? Um, is the plaintiff right? Is the defendant right? What is the right answer to this legal question? On the emergency docket, the question is partly who's right, but also partly what we call balancing the equities. Like what should the rule be temporarily while we figure out who's right? And in that context, I think there's been a huge shift where the court has diluted its standards, um, right? Acted in ways that are inconsistent with its prior precedents, where I don't think that's necessarily justified by external provocations. Um, rather, it's the external provocations that give us enough cases where it's actually visible that this shift has happened. So it's, it's a, in that respect, it's a, it's a chicken and egg problem, I guess. On the flip side with the merits docket, I noticed when I was reviewing my notes for this interview that we've kind of seen a decline in the number of cases the Supreme Court is agreeing to hear. So this year in the 2022-2023 term, the court agreed to hear 60 cases. It did end up dropping one of those cases. And then this is lower than the average between 2007 and 2021 of 75 cases per year. So do you have any inclination as to why that number may have gone down? Yeah, you know, it's, it's a great question. And it's a really important insight that not enough people are paying attention to. So this term is going to be the fourth in a row 
where the court issues 60 or fewer merits decisions. Um, Victoria, the, the last time the court didn't hit 60 before four years ago was, tw- was 1864 in the middle of the Civil War. Um, right there, I think so. I think two things are true. One, I think it's almost impossible to believe that these aren't connected and that as the justices are spending more time on and putting more effort into rulings respecting emergency applications, they're consuming resources that they would otherwise use to have more cases on the merits docket. But two, I also think they're both symptoms of the same disease, um, which is that, you know, for most of the Supreme Court's history, and this is a story that the book that the book actually opens with, the history of the court's docket, which may sound dreadfully boring, um, but I actually think it's, it's a really important context. We also get to spend some time making fun of William Howard Taft, um, who needs to be made fun of. Um, but right for most of the court's history, the court's docket was the subject of a meaningful, ongoing interbranch dialogue between Congress and the court, where if it got too crowded, Congress would take pressure off of it, where Congress would often dictate which cases the court would have to hear, right? Until 1891, the court had to hear every case Congress said it had the power to hear. Um, and so part of what's happened, Victoria, since 1988, that conversation has stopped, uh, where you know, the court now has just about complete control, not just over its, you know, its docket, but over what it's going to decide, even in the cases it is choosing to decide. So just to take two examples from last term, perhaps the two most visible decisions from last term. In the Dobbs abortion case, the court decided a question other than the one Mississippi had presented, um, right? The, the, no one in the cert petition had asked the Supreme Court to overrule Roe, and they did it anyway. And in Bruin, the major Second Amendment case, instead of granting certiorari on the questions that the challengers presented, the court rewrote the question presented and then granted it. Um, And so I think what this reflects is just how much power the court has today to set its own agenda and through that to set our agenda. Um, But also, Victoria, just how little um, concern the court has, right, about pushing its docket and behaving in ways that it never has before um, because it's just not worried about pushback and it's not worried that anything it does is going to be reined in by the current Congress. Looking at this term, are there any cases you have a close eye on, especially any that may be flying under the radar? So, I mean, I think it's we're, we're in for quite a, a busy next eight weeks um, as the court hands down the rest of its decisions for this term. You know, obviously, I think there are some headline grabbing ones. The affirmative action cases, I think, are going to be enormously important. Um, the question of whether this Colorado website designer can refuse to design a website for a same-sex wedding. Um, I mean, I think those are going to have massive implications. Um, one case that's flying under the radar, but that I actually think dovetails with what's been happening on the shadow docket. Um, is a case that's aptly but unhelpfully called United States versus Texas. Um, this is one of the literally dozens of lawsuits that Texas has filed challenging Biden administration policies, where it's filed them in you know um, remote geographic parts of Texas where they can guarantee that it's going to be assigned to a particular judge, um, where the judge issues a nationwide injunction. In this case, um, a nationwide injunction against the Biden uh, administration's immigration enforcement priorities. Um, and where I think there's a real question for the justices about how comfortable they are in a world in which every single federal policy can be challenged the day after it goes into effect by a, an attorney general of a state who represents a different party than the current president. 
Um, that didn't used to be a thing. And what we've seen, what we're seeing over and over again, and this is responsible for a lot of emergency applications, is during the Trump administration, Democratic attorneys general, during the Biden administration, Republican attorneys general, taking every single policy dispute and marching into their nearest friendly district court to try to block the policy, you know, the date before it can even go into effect. This is happening over and over again. The U.S. versus Texas case, the student loan cases, um, right? These are actually a large chunk of what the court's going to be handling this term. And it dovetails with the broader phenomenon the book is trying to get at, which is that if you look at the Supreme Court historically, and if you look at the full shape of the docket, the court is doing things today and acting in ways and deciding cases the likes of which we've never seen before. Um, and that would be a problem even if you liked the current composition of the court, and especially for those who don't. Another case that I was kind of looking into that had an emergency order come down in it is Moore v. Harper, the redistricting case out of North Carolina, which deals with the independent state legislature theory. And recently, the court actually asked parties in that case to submit further briefing in the case by May 11th to determine whether the Supreme Court can even rule or hear that case. So can you explain to our listeners some of the backstory there? Yeah, I mean, this is a doozy. We could do a whole episode just on this. Um, so the, the independent state legislature theory is a very radical interpretation of two words in the Constitution. Um, the word It's the same word in two provisions, legislature. Um, and there are two provisions, one in Article 1 and one in Article 2, that basically give power to the legislature of states to set the rules for federal congressional elections and to set the method by which we choose presidential electors. Um, and the question, no one disputes that that means that the state legislatures go first. The question that this theory asks is, does that mean that the state legislatures go last? Um, in other words, right, can a state Supreme Court strike down rules that a state legislature enacts for federal congressional elections or for selecting presidential electors as violating the state constitution? And in the North Carolina case, this is especially relevant because the prior North Carolina Supreme Court had struck down um, North Carolina's congressional district maps as uh, unlawful partisan gerrymanders, a claim that you can't bring in federal court anymore, um, right? Partisan gerrymandering claims are only viable in state court. And the question is whether the North Carolina Supreme Court lacked the, co the authority under the federal constitution to enforce the state constitution against the state legislature. Um, it's a radically broad theory, because if it were true, it would mean that the um, federal constitution, when it was adopted by the states, rewrote every state constitution um, and basically made the legislature supreme over the state supreme courts, even on questions of state constitutional law. And, you know, Victoria, as someone who studies and teaches constitutional law, I would have thought that if that were the obvious natural reading of the constitution, someone in 1788 would have objected. Um, especially those who thought we were already giving the federal government too much power over the states. And yet it's an entirely modern creature. Um, as you said, though, the case might well go away because the North Carolina Supreme Court has since flipped from a Democratic majority to a Republican majority. And it just recently vacated one of the two decisions the Supreme Court is actually reviewing, hence the supplemental briefs. I, I think it's very possible that the Supreme Court says, you know what, we're going to wait for another time to take up this remarkably big deal theory. 
And then another trend that we've kind of noticed is that the court is behind their typical schedule when it comes to releasing its rulings. This is the first term since 1917 that the court hasn't released a ruling by early December of its term, and they have only released 14 as of May 10th. So why do you think that is? Well, it's even worse than that, right? I mean, 19, the only reason why the data only goes back to 1917 is because that's when the court first started sitting in October, <laughs> um, right? Um, why? So why do I think that is? So I think there are two reasons. Um, one, again, dovetails with what we've already been talking about, which is how the shadow docket has shifted the sort of the work priorities of the court. Even though the court has granted relatively fewer emergency applications this term, there have still been a ton of high profile ones. Um, from President Trump, from Lindsey Graham, from Kelly Ward, um, right? Uh, the Title 42 case. Um, so I think that's one thing is that, again, right, they're distracted. Um, I also think that they are, you know, at loggerheads on some of these really high profile cases. And so therefore, you know, not getting out any of the cases where they're sharply divided. But there's also a th- another possibility, which is that, you know, we've heard a lot about the document security procedures that the court put into effect after the leak last year of the draft majority opinion in Dobbs, it's possible that those procedures are also slowing down the normal flow of paper um, inside the court. Um, whatever the answer, I mean, I think it's just, you know, the, the larger point is the one that I think we ought to all be able to agree on, which is that this court is not acting the way that prior courts have acted. Um, and, you know, maybe it's worth talking about why and maybe it's worth talking about whether that's a good thing or a bad thing. And maybe there ought to be, you know, a part of the government that has the institutional responsibility for asking those questions. My last question, speaking of the Supreme Court, obviously, you've argued in front of the Supreme Court and the Texas State Supreme Court. So I'm sure our listeners would love to know what that was like and how did you prepare for that experience? It's equal parts amazing and terrifying. Um, and, and, and the same is true of the U.S. Supreme Court and the Texas Supreme Court. The, you know, the, the U.S. Supreme Court what you don't realize until you're there is how close you are when you're standing at the lectern to the justices. I mean, you can almost reach out and give them a high five, although that would <laughs> probably not be cool. Break decorum. Seriously. But it is, it's so cool, but it's also like, I mean, how do you prepare? You practice. Um, like the, the weeks before my oral arguments, I will go on long walks where I literally just practice answering questions out loud. Um, because it's one thing to sort of think in your head about how you're going to answer a question, something else for the muscle memory of literally saying it um, and of practicing the answer, right? Because you just, you never want to be, you, you always want to be more prepared than they are. I, I will say though, I mean, so I've argued three cases in the U.S. Supreme Court, um, two of them in person and one of them by telephone in the middle of the COVID pandemic. And arguing by telephone was the worst experience of my life um, because you're, you can't see the justices. You don't know what they're thinking. You don't know how they're reacting to your questions. Um, at least when I did it, every, every justice had a fixed period of time to ask questions. So you couldn't tell if they were just using their time or if they actually were genuinely interested. Um, so I, I actually wrote about this for my, I have a Supreme Court uh, substack called One First. Um, and I wrote about the, 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 the argument experience of arguing by telephone. And I will say zero out of 10 would not recommend. Um, but it's, it's, I mean, arguing, it's the coolest part of our job. And, and it's an experience I wouldn't, I wouldn't trade for anything short of, you know, having a family and kids. Very cool. For our listeners, you can check out Steve's work via the link in our show notes. Make sure you subscribe to On the Ballot wherever you listen to podcasts. I'm Victoria Rose, and thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.